if you tell everybody you got bad luck and you own that that you have bad luck, you're going to keep bringing bad luck into your life. And I didn't want that because my life was already as bad as it was going to get. We are back. We are here today with Johanan, otherwise uh, known by most, I think, as Yogi. And Yogi is an award-winning marketing professional. He excels in developing and implementing impactful campaigns and strategies built for success. A graduate of The Ohio State University, Yogi has utilized his education in psychology to apply to his understanding of perception and human behavior as it relates to engagement. This is translated into multiple awards for innovation and impact for their work in the branding industry. Yogi has also been featured in many publications, either spotlighting his impact in his field or interviews on hot industry topics. Education and exposure are just a couple of words that describe Yogi's passion for impacting his community. He serves on many impactful boards in Columbus, including GCAC, Board of Trustees, Short North Alliance Board of Directors, the Lincoln Theater Board of Trustees, Nationwide Children's Hospital Development Board, Create Columbus Commission, and also co-founding member of Black Hack, a platform focused on exposing and educating minority entrepreneurs in technology, entertainment, and trends. Yogi is also the proud publisher and founder of Fly Paper Magazine, an online media network that has serviced the local community with news and information relevant to the urban millennials and their interest for 10 years. Yogi is a true innovator, on the move, with a passion for helping others. And his favorite quote, which is here, so I'm going to read it, is three words, be useful, unique, and updated. And I can understand why that's your favorite quote. And that's an, a, a lot to read because you've done a lot. And, and knowing you, uh, you always have your hands in a million different things. <laughs> so there's probably a lot we didn't even mention there. But it's good to have you here, Yogi. Thanks for taking no, the time. No, no. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate that. And as I need to change my bio up, man. I, th- I feel like <laughs> I could make it more personal. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, um, useful, unique, and updated. Uh, I feel like that sums it all up. And that's kind of the mantra I live by, you know, is to be useful to the community, uh, stay up to date. So you're always in the know of like what's going on, how people are communicating and connecting, and then unique, you know, uh, you know, be yourself. You know, So I'm always uh, trying to follow that when I'm working on any project, but I'm glad to be here, like talking with you today. So I'm excited. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. My pleasure. Um, I want to come back to that quote because I think it really does say a lot and I can understand why you like it. But sticking with kind of our flow here on the Gravity Podcast, I want to really share your full story. I know there's a lot there. And, you know, getting to the point where you have been able to do as much as you've done, to be on uh, as many boards as you are, serving the community like you are, um, helping your community. Really, I know you are passionate about your work and really being of service all over the place. That, that didn't just happen. I mean, you've, you've arrived here, but let, let's talk about kind of what did happen and how that's informed the work that you're doing today. Maybe you can just back up and, and tell me a little bit about what your early childhood was like. Like Before we go there, uh, people always ask me while I smile a lot. And I was thinking about this the other day, right? 
<laughs> they always ask me why I smile a lot. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know, I think it's really because I've made it through so much stuff that now as I tap into my potential, I, I just permanently had a smile like I'm okay because I know where I've come from. And I think that now it's almost like I get to enjoy the being in the moment and being progressive and being, you know, like moving forward without all of the crazy things that, are, that threaten, you know, my existence and my growth from the past. And so I, I just realized I had, this, I had this realization the other day and I was thinking about that, but, and, and as I tell you my story, you know what I mean? It kind of, it kind of makes sense. It'll, it'll make sense at the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, just to kind of hop on that for a second. I mean, you are really uh, a smiley guy. I mean, I, I, I really do. Like, I love seeing you like when I run into you because you're always just like full of this like brightness, you know, you're smiling, you're happy. I feel like you actually are happy to see me, yeah. you know, and I think you're like, you know, you're like that with everybody, you know, and and it is a good kind of point to highlight before we kind of get into all the what happened. Like the what happened is what allows you to really be that way yeah. today. You're like, yeah, like I kind of, I'm, I'm still I'm good, good yeah. here. <laughs> I'm a smile, you know? And, and, and we kind of will end up, you know, circling back around to that. But, um, you know, let's start kind of, you know, early on and tell me a little bit about your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we take it all the way back. My mom met my dad in Pittsburgh. Uh, my dad's from Wheeling, West Virginia. And even give you context on both my parents. So my dad grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, my dad didn't know his father. His mother had passed away when she had him. So he was raised by his sister. And by the time he found out who his father was, his father was already passed. And so my father grew up in the hills of Wheeling, West Virginia, not too far from here. So obviously there's, there's that unpacking, right? My mom, on the other hand, grew up in the hills of Penn Hills in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, one of 23 kids. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> 20, 23 kids. Wow. All by the same grandmother, all by the same mom. So my grandmother had 11 kids with her first husband, my grandfather, right? And then she had 12 kids by another person. His last name is Torres. So my mom's main name is Mills and her other side of her family is named Torres. So there's 12 on the Torres side and I believe 11 on the Mills side. I don't know. I don't know how you do that as a, as a physical person, but I give my grandmother all the kudos for having that many kids, but you can imagine. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, so I have like crazy extended family. I haven't even met yet, but you can imagine. So with that though, you imagine having even 11 kids in household, two sets of twins. My mom went through a lot. She was in the family broke up. So my mom was in foster foster homes and, the family got separated. There was a fire. A couple of the twins had died. And my mom grew up a very in a very difficult lifestyle. Being in foster homes, things like that. She didn't have her parents. And my grandmother left my granddad. So you have these two people who kind of come from both disrupted, non-traditional lifestyles, right? They come together. They met in Pittsburgh. My dad was taking photography. So he was uh he was in school for photography and then so they met they ended up you know staying together and so 
they, uh, my dad, and my mom were together for a few years, and it was a, it was within the stint between when I was three and five that uh, we had lived a different life. So as a kid, um, as a baby, I don't remember much of that. But I remember there was a period of a couple of years where my dad was, my dad was a hustler. That's where I get my hustle from, my dad. My dad was like a hustler through and through. But my dad was like, um, he was a general sales manager at, at Spitzer Ford. He also uh, taught photography at Akron U on the side. He was a manager of a photography store called Metzger's back in the day. And then he had his own photo studio where he would take pictures on the weekends. And so my dad would, he would also take photos for like, like R&B bands back in the day, like the Isley Brothers and the Whispers. Like he had got commissioned a couple of times. So like my dad had, my dad had like pictures of like old white Cadillacs with singers and like all white, you know what I'm saying? Suits with the brim hats. I mean, my dad was cold with it. We actually had a home. So during this, this kind of like couple of years, I lived in a middle-class neighborhood. Right. And I had a best friend, white dude named Jason. And we had a house. We had a tree house in the back. We had a, a dark room in our basement. My dad was actually making the photos. So like the red light and you hang up on, you know, we had all of that. The, uh, I had a drum set. Like, so there was a period of time where my dad was making enough money. And my mom was working a job that we lived in this middle class neighborhood. And that's really where I got introduced to like even racism. I didn't know what a Confederate flag was back then, but my friend's name was Bart, and his dad had the mustache that had the curls on the, on the ends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, he had, and I was never allowed in the house. I only could sit on the porch if I wanted to play with Bart. Uh, but Jason, on the other hand, my home, my best, best friend Jason, his parents was like, you know, they lived in a trailer half of the year, so they was like super cool. They let me in the house and we kick it, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then uh, I saw some of that early in those years, but um, we lived in that middle-class neighborhood for about two years, two strong years. I can remember from my, from my memory from like three to five. And then my dad left when I turned six. So, you know, typically I don't remember much from my, my childhood, you know, past, but I remember a lot of the traumatic stuff. So like my dad left, I remember the day he left because me and my sister were like balling and I was six. And ever since then it went like straight downhill. So my dad leaves which basically left my mom like poor. So my mom went straight to welfare. We moved out of that house. And for the next five years, we moved every year. So we got kicked out of a place and we had to move to another place. I would go to another school. I went to five different elementary schools. So you imagine as, an, as a kid meeting new kids every year, being the new kid every year, not knowing if you're even going to stay to develop relationships Luckily, I, I develop relationships, so I know a lot of people in Akron now. You know, what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you something just to uh, jump in there for a second. So your dad leaves, yeah. and you guys are now hopping around, you know, trying to make it work. Do you have contact with your dad at all during that period of time, or is he really totally out of the picture now? Not much. So mm-hmm. you know, my dad was in and out for the rest of my life. He would be gone, you know, especially in the beginning, just because of the, the, the stress and all of that. He left my mom. So mm-hmm. he was rejecting that. And so he was trying to find other things to, to do and to get into. And in that process, he got addicted to drugs. So mm-hmm. when he got addicted to drugs is when he really started to be more sparse. And so, um, yeah. So, but here's the thing is that I rocked with my dad. I knew my dad was leaving. Mm-hmm. for reasons that he had to. 
And so mm-hmm. I still admire my dad. I never hated my dad. Like my dad was like my idol because he was so yeah. cool. He could talk to anybody. He was so cool. And he was, you know, he was short. So both my parents are short. Like my dad's like five three, my mom's like five two. I got my height and size from my granddad. So if you like see me with these, like when my parents and they both from when they were alive, it was like you would see these pictures of me. They're like, where the hell did you come from? You know uh-huh. what I mean? But I took up my yeah. Like when my dad, when my dad left, that was basically the end of that family model that I, you know, enjoyed for those couple of years. And as as I thought was was gonna be how I would live, you know, the rest of my life, that pretty much ended once he left. And I didn't ever really I, well, I actually had a spot. There was a time in like high school where I lived with him for like a few months. But outside of that, we we would see each other rare, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it was rare. It just kind of went downhill from there. Yeah, and and you know, it's I know from my own experience, it's actually interesting. Father's Day is coming up, and I, you know, kind of have my own uh, issues with my biological father, and I have a lot of perspective and gratitude. Um, kind of like you did for, you know, kind of what he had to go through, which, you know, did also kind of leave us abandoned in in a lot of ways, you know, from him, I was really blessed with an amazing stepfather and mother, but that's all in hindsight. You know, that's, that's all for me. Over time, I was able to get to that place where I really do have nothing but gratitude for my experience and for the kind of generational element of the trauma that led to his experience. In your case, I'm not sure if I heard you right. It sounded almost like you kind of always understood that at a young age. Is that true or did that happen later for you too? Well, I, I understood why he had to leave. You know, and and I knew that he always loved me. Like that was one thing I knew is that he loved me. There was a lot of stuff that he did, you know, throughout the years that definitely hurt me. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of times he was supposed to be there, and a lot of times my mom took it out on me if I was hurt. It was a lot. It it, it was a lot of times where I I did resent him because I was going through a lot, and he wasn't there for me. And he was, you know, out in the world doing all types of stuff. And so when I needed him, he wasn't there, but as I got older, I still appreciated, you know, who he, like when we were together, who he was and how he, anything he tried to teach me, you know, I just always still looked up to him even to, you know, uh, he passed in uh, 2018. So I, uh, even to that day, like we still were just connecting, but I never had that. Like I, I didn't. So and it was unfortunate because I felt for him too, because as you grow older, you get more empathy, you understand life. And so I knew from growing up, like, man, how, how did you, because I have no teaching as a, as a, as a parent now I'm trying to raise my daughter, I have no lessons that were passed down really for my dad or my mom. I'm winging it. And then I look at my dad and say, but he was winging it too. Cause he didn't have his parents in his life. And so when you get older, you realize what your parents are dealing with and you realize that they're humans. And so that model that we have as kids, where it's like, I need you to do everything goes away once you become an adult and you realize, oh, there was no way in hell he was going to be able to, to do all of that or no way in hell she was able to. So I always did appreciate my dad. It was just over the years, it's just he was gone. So I just didn't expect anything from him. You know, uh, I remember yeah. certain birthdays and stuff like that. But so me and my mom basically every year had to move and that was stressful. I mean, and my mom took it hard. So when my dad started to get into drugs, my dad got into crack cocaine really heavily. And so um, he was out there. And um, even when I would go see him, 
you know, you think about those things that are seared into your memories. Like my memory is peppered with, you know, going to my dad's house and him telling me to go outside so him and his friends could smoke crack, you know, and I knew what they were doing, but I didn't know, you know, I knew they were doing something they want me to see some stuff going on, but I would just go outside and play and then they would call me back in and, you know, I wouldn't know that they were high out their minds. I was just a kid. So it was like, you know, but uh, I've had to go into crack houses and ask for my dad. You know I mean? My mom would drop me off at the crack house and say, go in there and get him. If you want your dad, you know, go in there and get him. And I would literally walk in and I can remember like the smell. And that was my first time as a kid, you know, going in to find my dad. And I was like, what the hell is this smelling here? And it was like hazy all throughout the house. It was like somebody was cooking food or something, but it was like, that was my first experience with a crack house. I had a couple afterwards, but it was like, that was, you know, and my mom, she took the alcohol. So my mom pretty much just drank every day, every day, every day. And um, so in between her drinking and us moving and us, you know, just being stressful and being homeless for a point of time and bad boyfriends that would abuse her. And at the time I was too young. So the next, you know, five years until we finally moved to like the North side. So I lived on the East side of town, the West side of Akron. I'm from Akron, Ohio, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but. Yeah, um, I knew that. Cause you know, I lived in Akron too. Yeah, that's right. That's I was right. About yeah. 10. So yeah. Yeah, that's I, right. Uh, that's right. Akron I'm, in the building. I know Akron. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So um, moving from school to school, finally, we got to the, the North side of town and that is where we at least started to gain some normalcy. So, um, you know, my sister, I have a sister too. So my sister is uh, five years older than me. And my sister, at the same time, when my dad left, my sister, she was bipolar, but we never knew. So in the black community, you know, it's like we have mental health issues going on, but we don't go to the doctor enough. So we don't get diagnosed every now and then. So we just say, oh, they crazy. <laughs> or they, they touch, they special, stuff like that. So my sister was actually bipolar. And um, she had never got diagnosed. So my mom had a hard time dealing with my sister. So my sister ended up running away a lot. And so my sister from the age of like 11, 12 was running away. And then she had a spot about four years where my sister was in foster homes and in children's homes. My sister had her first kid at like 15 and they took her kid and put her kid in the children's services. And she had two daughters before she turned 18 that the children's services took away from her. So my sister was out of the house too. So it was just me and my mom my sister was a foster, you know, was in foster homes and she was being abused and she had been, um, you know, molested in the foster home and it got sent to like a camp. And so as a troubled teen, my sister went through a lot. But uh, me and my sister had a good relationship and she loved me. My sister lives in Columbus right now because we're, you know, we still like look out for each other. And so she was there. So it was just me and my mom. And so my mom took out a lot of that stress on me. And so my mom was very, very very emotionally and verbally abusive. Uh, she was very small, but she was tough as hell. You know what I mean? She grew up in a big family, so she ain't, she didn't play. You know, it was one of those moms that didn't play, but she was very, just very tough. And me and her, as I got older, you know, after I went through like middle school and I started to go through puberty and everything and all that stuff, you know, me and her started to butt heads even more and more and more. And the alcohol had really started to destroy her body. And uh, she started to go through a lot of physical changes. So I had to deal with that. And then my mom was, suicidal. So at the age of, you know, 11, 12, I am trying to keep my mom from killing herself. So my mom would have these bouts of like, I can't take all of this anymore. A lot of it was fueled from alcohol. So she had tried to get help and went to rehab a couple of times, but that was pretty much my tween years, I guess, you know, um, you know, going through 
middle school and then, you know, I got into high school and, you know, um, I had a group of people that were around me that kept me, that looked out for me because they saw the stuff. Friend, they, these were friends or, yeah, or people yeah. in the community or who is this? Um, so we went to a Bible school. And so uh, the a lot of the members of the Bible school would look out for me. And, um, you know, uh, one in particular family, I call him my brother, my, my best friend, my best friend's family really took me in. And so they would, you know, let me come over to the house. My mom would kick me out sometimes, like at a young age. And, and so like when she would kick me out, I would go over their house or something like that. And they would let me in and they were a really nice family. He's just like uh, my best friend and his younger sister. And then um, I call him, my, you know, my mom, my dad, uh, Joyce and Richard. And Joyce and Richard really looked out for me. And so they were my example of what I wanted to be. And so I saw them and I tried to attach because I didn't have anything to attach on to. So I attached on to that view of a black family as a whole looking out for each other. And their grand, they had a big family too. So they had the grandparent, the grandma lived right across the street. And so they brought me in and the other people from the Bible school would look out for me too. And so that's how I got through like, you know, middle school, high school was because of their support because they knew what I was going through at, at home. Yeah. And, and let me just, you know, kind of pause you there. I was going to ask you like how, I, I mean, and I don't even know like what you were like at that time. I'm imagining that considering what was going on in your life, considering what you experienced with your father, with your mother, moving around, homeless, the 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 addiction, you know, having to get your dad out of crack houses. Um, I mean, no kid should ever have to walk into a crack house, let alone to get somebody that they love out. You know, your mom, every all the trauma. Uh, you know what I what I was gonna ask you is like, how did you manage through that? You, I'm kind of imagining this like pretty mature perspective on it all when you could have easily just gone into doing what you were seeing happen. You know, I mean that's pretty young to to have that. You know, did you start to? get tempted to turn to drugs and alcohol and, and rebellion or, or following that behavior? Or did you really just go the other route? And, and how did you do that? Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, it was kind of a blend, you know, because in my, in my, in my neighborhoods, like what I was going through was typical. You see what I'm saying? Like my best friend, Rob, his dad was a crackhead and we, we knew like, oh, you know, crackheads would come in the house and we just, it was a part of our lives. Like it was a part of our lives when you live in the projects and it's what you see. And so it's, it's how a lot of underprivileged youth grow up. And that's a lot of the pain that we deal with. So there was a point in time, and I don't know, this is one, again, one of those moments that I, I remember that I used to tell people I just had bad luck because so much bad stuff was going on. I was owning it. And, you know, you know, now mindfulness helps me think about a lot of that stuff. I was feeding off of what my mind was trying to tell me. And I was trying to attach to something, you know, when you almost, when you own a feeling, if it's positive or negative, you own it because it makes you feel like real, you know, in a way. And as a young kid, I used to just own that immaturely. I would tell people, man, I, I got bad luck until one time, I remember something bad happened to me and I had put it out there. I had projected it so much around me that somebody has said, man, you're right. You do got bad luck. And then everybody's like, man, you're right, bro. You got bad luck. And I was like, damn, now I owned it. And this was my label. 
was the bad luck label. And then somebody, I remember somebody older told me, if you tell everybody you got bad luck and you own that, that you have bad luck, you're going to keep bringing bad luck into your life. And I didn't want that because my life was already as bad as it was going to get, you know? And so I had, that was probably my first encounter with how to use mindset to change, you know, your environment because I learned from, I listened to that. I think my my need to try to get away from all of that is what drove me, to be mm. honest. Because for yeah. me, I had to get the hell up out of that situation. Yeah. And you just knew whatever they were doing wasn't working and you wanted to just get the hell out of there. And so you cho- made different choices. Yes and no. My mom whooped my ass enough that I had I got good grades. Like... Okay. Was a, it was a couple of times where I was slipping on my grades. I was always smart. My mom knew I was smart and she always did speak to me about that. She was like, you're a smart uh-huh. kid. And she had good expectations of me. I did like school. She had a value around school and your yeah. education. Yeah. My mom uh-huh. didn't play when it came to school. And so I learned early that, you know, don't try to manipulate your grades. I, like back in the day when you got to print out of your report cards, you know, so I tried to change my, I tried to change my one time, man, boy, I got it. It was, ter- it was terrible, man. But you know, you think you could get away with stuff like that as a kid, you know what I'm saying? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. my mom was really, she was really on top of education. And so I stayed upon education, but I definitely was caught up in a lot of the stuff that happens, um, in the streets. Like, uh, but also like, the people that looked out for me kept me away from that too. And my sister was really in the streets too. So my sister had got into the drug game as well too. And so she was a hustler in her own sense. And so I had street connections and I was in the streets, but then I also had people who wanted to keep me out of that. So I definitely, I had a mixture of both. And so I definitely had my fair share of a lot of different, messed up stuff happened to me. Like mm-hmm. there's been some mm-hmm. things that I've, that I've probably done and that have happened to me that I wouldn't want anybody to go through, you know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there were a couple of people that showed me something different. And when mm-hmm. I say uh, in my bio, you read it, it spoke to it, education and exposure, mm-hmm. education and exposure. And we'll, hopefully we'll come back to it at the, towards the end of this conversation, but education and exposure has been key to me because if you don't see anything different, you don't know anything different. And yeah. so because of all the stuff I was going through in my home, like even, even in high school, even in high school, I was smart in high school. I, and I, and I was, there was this balance. I hung out with all of my friends who were, we were all getting into some stuff. I played football, but then we also got into a lot of trouble. But because I was smart, I was around all my classes were with, were with different kids who didn't look like me. And I got to connect with them and like, connect with them in a different way too and, and learn and embrace education. And I liked it. You know, I had a whole system down where I never took home homework. I had two study halls. I was efficient with my time and I, I got all my stuff. So I, education was there, but I still was not, I didn't have any guidance in my life. An example is like, even in high school, I was good at football. I had a full ride uh, uh, offered to me from Dartmouth um, Ivy League school. And um, I didn't even know what Dartmouth was. And so I like laughed at this guy, like, here to give me a full ride to play football at a school that I was like, I'm going to Penn State, bro. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and just because my mom was from Pittsburgh, you know what I mean? I just yeah, picked it. Yeah. My mom was a Steelers fan. I'm like, I'm going to Penn State. That was it. That's all I knew. And this guy's in front of me. And he's like, I'm going to give you a full ride to Dartmouth. And I asked this guy, where is it at? And he's like, oh, it's in uh, New Hampshire or something like that, right? Uh-huh. And I'm like, where? And he's like, up here. And I'm like, oh, man, hell no. That's so much snow. Uh-huh. 
And he's like, uh-huh. yeah. And I'm like, hey, any black people there? And he shows me like the one black dude. Was that like Dartmouth? Uh-huh. And I was like, uh-huh. literally, I turned it down not knowing what an Ivy League school was, really. I just thought, okay, yeah. it's a smart school. No guidance in that manner. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, um, but it was one yeah. lady. It was one lady who was a, she was assigned to me from Children's Service. So because I went through so much stuff with my mom, Children's Services had to be called to my house a couple of times because my mom would kick me out. So mm-hmm. it was like, ma'am, you can't kick out your son. So they would, they gave me a mentor. And this mentor mm-hmm. was this lady. Um, and I still talk to her all the time. And she, she worked at rallies at the time. And so she had, um, she had came and picked me up as like, uh, you know, one day to come pick me up and, and talk to me or whatever. And so she asked me what I doing for college. And I was like, I'm gonna just take whatever scholarship I get. And she was like, well, you're smart too. You should apply for a school. And so she actually paid for my college application and took me to Akron and made me fill out the uh, form to Ohio State for a scholarship and pay for my application. And while we was at the library, she told me a lot about how education was going to be my way out. Like, you want to get out of this situation, right? Like, look at your life. How are you going to get out of this situation? She said, this could be your key to get out of that. So she paid for my application fee. And even though I wanted to go to Penn State, because I was, you know, going through a lot of stuff and I actually had got my son's mom pregnant at the time, you know, I mm. wanted to stay in. So I was a young dad. So I had my son, you know, when I was 17. So she knew that she was like, you want to be close to home. So she literally walked me through that application process and I got accepted. And mm-hmm. I, got a, I got a full ride uh, to Ohio State on academics. And if it wasn't for her taking the time out with me, because my one of my best friends who was really good at football, he was like all hands, all state. Nobody mm-hmm. ever had take, taken him to even apply for a college. And he ended up not going to college because of that. He, he went to a college for like a couple of years, but he didn't go to Michigan. He wanted to go to Michigan, but he didn't get in just because they didn't even fill out the application in time. So like mm-hmm. that one instance, and this is why mm-hmm. I tell people all the time is like, you always have an opportunity. That one instance helped change my life. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. you know, amazing. I, I, um, I have one other story that's not exactly the same, but my brother-in-law got into Brown uh, University, but he went to Syracuse because the girls were better looking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. But it is really interesting, you know, um, the education piece. You know, I think that you're really on to something. And it was brought to my attention, um, not to kind of skip too far ahead, but in the recent weeks, you know, there's been a, a push towards declaring um, this, this health crisis in the black community, that there's uh, uh, there was a movement with CEOs, uh, Shannon Harden um, started it, I'm sure you're aware, I signed the letter and a black yeah. friend of mine said, you know, don't sign that letter. I had already signed it. He said, but because it's not a health crisis, it's a crisis of education, it's a crisis of housing, it's a health crisis, it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And the education piece, I think, really is a huge uh, part of all of this, that whether it be through a mentor or through, um, even if you've got a family that's together, if they don't know, then then you know how are you supposed to know? And there really is, you know, a, a, a lack of education that's happening, um, you know, in that community and and in many communities about what the options are. Now, you you might not have wanted to 
go to um, New Hampshire anyway, right? You might not have yeah. wanted to be in Dartmouth anyway, anyway right? right? Like right. maybe your instincts were actually perfect, you know? Right. That like you didn't want to be someplace where there wasn't any black people and uh, where it snowed and it was way far away. I mean, that might have been just as good, but to know the options. To know the you options, know? yes. Yeah. <laughs> to know the options, perfect, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and that's what it is, and that's what a lot of us deal with, is the options. And yeah. and and you don't start to see it until you start to be exposed to it. And that's why education and exposure is really key to me, because you have to be exposed to something to even drive your 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 desire to educate yourself too as well. You see, so education is definitely key, but motivation to for that education is sometimes the barrier. So um, I tend to talk to a lot of young kids today about that because in our communities, we don't have, we have very, man, my, when my son graduated Ohio State, I watched those kids walk across the stage and it was like, oh, this kid's going to work for Nike. And it, he, my son went to the, uh, he, he, uh, he, because Ohio State, they have the African-American graduation and then they have the standard graduation. So the, um, the health center and the, and the cultural groups put together the African-American graduation so that they could give those kids that experience. And I watched those, all of those black and brown kids walk across the stage and you hear, oh, we're going to work for, this one's going to work for Nike. Oh, this one's going to be a scientist. This one's going to be a chemist. This one's going to be an engineer. And I'm like, we have so much talent. But when you go into the neighborhoods and to the communities, there's so few that get to that level. And yeah. so few of us don't have exposure to that when we look in our in our homes and our neighborhoods. If it's if most time it's one person in that home and most of the time that one person is stretched super thin working any type of job they can get, which is a factory job, which is an, a, you know, a, a, a labor job or which is something that doesn't require secondary education. So when you think about options, a lot of the conversations that we were having and is, is okay, I'm going to go work at the factory or I'm going to go hustle or I'm going to go do what I see around me, which is sports or entertainment. And and I know that's an old cliche, but it's a real thing. And um, so nowadays, I try to spend more time gathering people who look like me, who are doing different things, to talk to the youth about it. Because in order for them to ever start to really see what they can be, they have to be able to see themselves in it. And when you don't see yourself in it, you don't under, you don't understand what that even looks like. So that is a key, is the, the exposure to as well, to be able to say, you're a what? What is that? Oh, and you and you can make that much money at that. So there was right. a lot of that that I was exposed to just by coming to college. Yeah. And, so so but let me let me just kind of click on, you know, you 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 go to college and uh, you know, obviously uh you know, with your son graduating from college, we understand that uh you know, your son turns out to be a successful young man too. But you're a young man when you when you have a baby, and I know that's not an uncommon thing. But but you know, as you said before, your dad didn't know what he was doing. He had never done it before. Um, you didn't either, right? right? Like I didn't either. I mean, I'll I'll never forget when the when we had our first child. The doctor said, "Well, I stamped the instructions on his back. Good luck." You know, <laughs> and, you know that first night. You know, I remember like flipping through the baby book, you know, crying, crying. What do you do? You know, like you literally don't know. I still don't know. I've got, you know, a 19, 17 and, and 14 year old. And, and, you know, I think I'm doing a good job. I don't know that I was all along, 
I'm learning and getting right. better. But, right. you know, when, but, and I was young, I was, you know, 26 when I had my first kid, but you're in college, you're studying, you know, what was that like being a young father? Well, I had, I had, well, I had a, I had a very, very, very awesome. She is still super awesome. My son's mom really stepped up to the plate. So my son still stayed in Akron. So you got to imagine I'm in Columbus. I'm going home on the weekends to pick my son up. I'm bringing him down to campus with me. So I'm literally on campus with a baby sometimes, like, you know, still partying. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, but um, his mom was, is, was a blessing. His mom was a blessing. She really held it down and she knew, you know, that I was, she knew that I wanted to be a better example for my son. So I was determined. I mean, I had my troubles. Like I got kicked out of Ohio State three times. So I, and I still graduated from Ohio State. So I feel like I'm in a record book somewhere because I, I got kicked out three <laughs> times and I still graduated from there. So mm-hmm. I had to go home a couple of times. I had to, you know, my mom had passed during that time. So his mom always looked out. But still being a young dad, I, you know, still had to think about, I had to raise my son still. I had to, you know, that was a responsibility. Yeah. I had to, so honestly, it benefits me now because we're, he's, he's, he's older, he's 24 and we get to kick yeah. it. So we hang out. Right. So, no, it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome now. Right. It's awesome. But you yeah. know, what, you know, what, Brett, uh, even that, and this is another reason why I say I smile a lot now is because I, I, my son said this to me. I was going to go, my son's in Florida going to grad school and I was driving and my son looked at me and he said, hey, dad, I just want to tell you something. He said, I was thinking about this the other day. He says, I know where you come from because, you know, we are like he knows where I come from. He knows his whole story. And he said and uh, he said, I was thinking to myself the other day. I was reflecting on my childhood. And he said, I realized that I didn't go through any of the things that you went through in your life. And he says, I cannot come close to finding something that was as crazy as you went through growing up. He says, so I just want to tell you that, like, I appreciate you creating this life for me because you've always been there. You love me. And like, you made sure that I didn't go through what you went through. And I'm in the car, like, wiping away. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you are. Like, oh, oh man. Like, oh I'm God. about to wipe away tears. <laughs> That's so beautiful, man. And 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 he knows because I've apologized to my son a lot, like because yeah. I didn't have. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I yeah. haven't been, you know, the the dad that you wanted. I'm sorry, I haven't. I have no context. I just yeah. have what I watch and what I see and what I aspire to be. And I just yeah. shoot from the hip. And I'm still doing that, even with my daughter. You know, my daughter yeah. lives with me full time, and her mom passed in 2018, which same time my dad passed around that same year. And I'm still doing the same. I'm like trying to understand a young girl through these yeah. years between 12 and 14. And so, yeah. but hearing that from my son made me reflect. And it took me back through all the instances that I, that I went through from the homelessness to the moving, to the yeah. fights, to the drugs, to the alcohol, to, you know, finding, you know, being blessed to find a way to do something. And now when I say I smile a lot is because I've gotten past survival and into potential. And yeah. the, 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 the key for a lot of growth is when you're not thinking about survival, you have time to try to tap into your potential. And that's where mm-hmm. the equity piece is distance for a lot of people because when you are raised in an environment where you have everything you need, you're able to have a better opportunity to tap into your potential because you're not thinking about some of those basic needs. 
and a lot of the basic needs that we have in our communities take forefront. And I can't, I can't think about my, my potential right now. I got to feed me and my brother. So I got to mm-hmm. go out there and I got to hustle. Or I, I can't even tap into my potential because I'm always trapped into this systematic thing. But I was able to do that. And I feel blessed. And I'm, my gratitude has been growing year over year because I know where I've come from. But now I am getting to see what I can be. And so the yeah. reason why I have my hands tied into so many things, trying to help as many people as I can, because one, I want to be able to help others because people help me out. But also, I'm trying to really see the limits of my potential because I've been told so many years that I can only get so far or I can only do so much. And I've had to fight that all these years, which a lot of us still have to. Our, our daily fight is to prove people wrong, prove the system wrong, you know, prove ourselves wrong. Because the biggest challenge is convincing ourselves of that value and to be able to understand that value. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and and listen, you know, I'm here to tell you, and I know I'm probably not the first, but sometimes you got to hear it a bunch. Your potential is unlimited. And it's just a matter of continuing to go forward and, and, and learning, uh, you know, how to, how to just build on what you built. And what you just shared, I think, uh, about your son is really important. Um, and I just want to highlight it for people to hear because I, I think this is a big issue um, with men, um, with, with human beings in general, with men in particular. It might be worse in the Black community. I don't know. But there's a uh, some sense of not feeling like it's acceptable to acknowledge your um, shortcomings, your weaknesses, where you screwed up, you know, where you weren't at your best. And, and then, and then, you know, to understand that like, Hey, in in a lot of ways you were doing your best and for you to show your son what it looks like to do better, to grow, to improve, to keep working at it. And, and, and for him to see the change, I think seeing the change probably is more important than having been great all those years, you know? For him to see you grow is probably the, the most important thing you can show him. So kudos to you. No, it's thank really you. Uh, beautiful. All right, let's talk a little bit about how you get into your career. Uh, you know, you've done a lot and, and I want to kind of elevate uh, how you have uh, thrived as an entrepreneur. And, and then let's talk a little bit about kind of how you're helping some other people do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, um, you know, I, I feel like my dad instilled with me the entrepreneur. My mom did too. So I had a, my mom made me set up a lemonade stand in middle school, bro. It was the most embarrassing thing. It was the most, bro, it was the most embarrassing thing that should ever happen to a kid. If you want a lemonade stand, great, go have one. But if you don't want one, your mom putting you in the middle of the hood with a lemonade stand is the worst thing you could do to your kids. I'm telling you right now. So my mom, my mom, and she would take half my money for cigarettes, man. I was so mad. But my mom made me stand out in the corner of like the one of the busiest intersections of the north side. And she was like, you got to scream, lemonade. And she would make me scream and she would watch me from the corner, like say it. I'm like, damn, lemonade. And, then, <laughs> and, and I probably made like maybe like maybe a hundred dollars for that summer. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And I, I had no I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, 
a matter of fact, I had the, the hot dog. You know, you got the hot dogs. You got the little carabiner that you set on fire. You know, uh-huh. I, I had a carabiner under there. I never set it on fire. So my hot dogs were cold as hell. And people would buy a hot dog from me. They're like, hey, let me get a hot dog. And they're like, man, this hot dog's cold. <laughs> and, they would give me, and they would give me $5 just for trying. Like, oh, you're, bless your heart. Like, try it. Here's $5. So, so between my mom and my dad, like my mom was just, she made me hustle because I feel like she just wanted cigarette money. But she also just wanted me to make money for myself. She wanted me to be independent. My dad was like the true hustler. My dad was like, he showed me how to have four or five plates spinning at the same time and still make it look good. So naturally, just naturally, when I was in high school, I used to, you know, throw get togethers and little hangouts and stuff and kind of, you know, uh, I was involved with a couple of dance groups and was doing some stuff back in the day. And when I got into college, I started doing, you know, some events and stuff like that too. And I realized that, I just had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I always wanted to try something. I was like, I think I could do this. Uh, let me try this. Let me try this. So I never really worked in corporate. Um, I never worked. I never aspired to work in corporate. I just always knew from what I watched my dad do and from what I, what I watched other people do. And when you grow up in, in that environment, you have to become a hustler. And so a hustler's mentality that people talk about is a real thing based off of like survival. And so when you get into an environment where there's opportunity and you still have that same hustle, you're able to open up doors for yourself. And that was what I was able to do when I got, when I got to Columbus and I started to, you know, try to figure out what was my next. So I was always trying things, trying things and trying things and seeing what would stick. And, uh, um, a lot of them failed, you know, a lot of things I started, you know, didn't work out, but there was just something innate, you know, and you know it in you, you know, it is in you when you have that, that desire, you can fail and you can wake up the next day and say, I wonder what else I could try. So I tried to get into marketing from school, which is another barrier. I tried, but I was a psychology major because I was trying to figure myself out. That was when I first got into school, I was trying to figure out who am I? Cause I made it out of all of this crazy stuff. Like what's wrong with me? What's going on in my head? I'm trying to process and who know who I am. So I took psych. And I did a marketing minor. And so I tried to get in the marketing business when I came out of school. I always had a thing for like, my dad made photos. I wanted to do videos. So I always had a thing for creative. And so I tried to get jobs at, you know, the big marketing agencies here and couldn't get one. I couldn't even get an interview half of the time. And I knew what I wanted to do. So in between trying to get into the marketing business, I would do events and I, w- I was working for Corso for a while, running Red Zone and running, you know, a lot of different, you know, night venues and throwing festivals and concerts. And that was my, my way of trying to you know, sustain myself. But then um, as the years went on, I basically took all of the knowledge I had. I worked in radio for a little bit and um, I worked, I had created my own print magazine before. So I knew print, I knew radio, I knew events and engagement. And I, I had a, a sense in myself that this is an opportunity that I had like five business cards at once. It was like I had a printer, a printing business. So I was like, if you need something printed, I got that for you. If you need, you know, an event, I got that for you. So I was like, I got like four business cards. I need to consolidate that. And so me and my partners were like, you know, we were doing our research and we just kind of figured that we could take all of what we were doing and turn that into a business to say, this is the way that you engage people. And because everything we were doing was around, it was basically involving people, whether it was content or events or, you know, the marketing. So we started Warhol and Wall Street. Now it's you know ten years ago now, and um, you know uh, we started it very small. We're still very small, purposely, and um, still learning along the way. 
And another another thing, another barrier is still like same thing. I'm talking about exposure, even at a younger age, even now, a lot of the struggles like I don't have a lot of mentors in my space. Right. As a black person in creative, I don't have a lot of mentors to help me figure out hard decisions that I've never faced before. So even still now, I'm always feeling like I'm still shooting from the hip or some things like how do I grow? How, like what's, what's, what, what steps do I take next? And so I, I definitely believe that there's still those things that hold us back because we just don't, even in our circles, have people to connect with that can understand what our experience is. So, so I still try to do that with as many people as I can, you know, honestly. But now the company is doing good. I actually, I get to bring a lot of that to what we do through Warhol and Wall Street. I think my passion to get to know myself and, and, and that passion to learn about human behavior gives me a perspective that I think gives us those ideas to connect people through understanding how we connect, understanding how we react with each other, understanding like how we perceive things and our emotional and within context of what's happening around us. Culture and context play a big role in everything we do. And so if you're ever going to develop a connection or create a connection or develop a relationship, you have to look at that first. And a lot of people don't do that. They don't look at human, they don't look at humanity or they don't look at culture from the ground. So they don't look at that first to determine how they want to even approach a situation. They do it based off of data or top-down thinking. And so that is where really where I kind of live at. I feel like I've brought in my passion to, to connect people and then my curiosity about how we interact and think into the same space through Warhol and Wall Street. And so where it's like, I, I really try to think of that mindset of building with the end user and not with them in mind, like being a part of that culture and understanding that culture and then being able to create that connectivity through there. So now I love yeah. it. Yeah, and, and I don't know if this is fair, but I, I had kind of made this note earlier on when you were talking about this like mixture of both being like in the streets and then also having the role models and being safe. And, and I'm wondering like if you've been able to kind of figure out how to connect those two dots as you are now, you know, leaning into your business where you like, you get kind of where there is some, some energy that, you know, kind of has that, that street experience tied to it and how you can like bring the safe part to it, to, to make it something that can really be of value to people. Is, is that, is that yeah. fair? I mean, is that, is that you know how you've kind of used that experience? Yeah, that's exactly how I have. It's just yeah. understanding that, and 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 if if you if you start with people, if you if you start with people, and you start with humanity, and you understand what where they're at, where they're at today, you understand how to make that connection. So yes, it's exactly what mm-hmm. we do. Well, you know, one of our one of my favorite you know experiences that I've done over the past couple of years was the Harlem Renaissance Initiative that mm-hmm. we did here in the city, which was. How do we create and uplift our black creative scene here? How do we how do we uplift our black artists? And so, being I mean I'm I'm in the community and I'm I'm always in that space. I still live. I, I so like for me like fun times is going to traveling and going to cities and being in random neighborhoods, just soaking up the culture. Like that to me is like a, a great weekend trip. I'll go to a city I've never been to and I'll find my way into a neighborhood and community and I'll just be there, be there for it. I'll have no plans and I'll just find myself randomly with people. And I love 
soaking in that cultural context because sometimes so many, from a brand perspective, from like an industry perspective, so many companies are, they're just full of processes and people and places that are assigned to do a job. And then they sit there in a room and they all throw their ideas together and they say, this is what people want. But if you're always there in touch with the community, you know exactly what what they want. You're speaking to them about it in real time. And so I never want to lose that connection. I always want to stay there. And, and, and that's a lot of the things that we do are rooted in that and are rooted yeah. in, in staying in that, in that space. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Black Hack, Flypaper. We just had 614 Day. I mean, you, you have a, a lot of uh, your hands in a lot of different things that are doing exactly what you just described. You know, kind of share with us a little bit about you know each of those things and anything else that you're you're you know moving forward with on right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're like just creating waves. You know, I think that's what you know what you what I aspire to do is to create more waves, put little put more dents into the universe that that may start to resonate. You know, outside of ourselves, right? And so, uh, flypaper was a, a response to a need. It was a response to there wasn't any media that was connected to urban culture in Columbus at my age demographic, right? There was the column post and the Columbus post and things like that. And those typically were older establishments that weren't connected to us at all. Now, even with flypaper, I've passed flypaper on to our younger generations because they communicate in a totally different way. You know, when I was younger, blogs and newspapers were still kind of cool. Nowadays, you have to reach people where they're at. So, you know, I didn't hold on to the structure of it. I just wanted to create space wherever that space was at for the black younger voice and the urban younger voice. It wasn't just black. It was just like music, culture, you know, all of that kind of, you know, mixed into one. Um, and that had waves. I mean, we were the biggest online media before online media was really big in Columbus. We were coming up around the same time Columbus Underground was happening. So that was good. Uh, black Hack was the same thing, you know, partnering with Bruce and Brandon to really respond to the lack of connectivity for black tech and black startups, you know, um, we know the talent's there, but you have to create spaces for those. You have to create places for those things to connect and a space for that. So that's what Black Hack was about. 614 Day, the same thing, just supporting local and making sure everything's always have some type of community type of connection to it. And and now, you know, uh, what we're really excited about is, well, you know, currently right now we're addressing COVID. We're, uh, we're working with the governor right now to address uh, the, the minority uh, the disproportionate numbers of minorities been affected by COVID. So we just released a campaign called More Than a Mask that we're doing with uh, the, the state. So we're going to be going across the state, giving people more than a mask because a mask is not going to stop the numbers of the high numbers in uh, minority communities, especially African-American communities. Like, you know, the underlying issues aren't solved with just a mask. You need more than that. So we're, we're launching that uh, very soon. So you'll see that coming out. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've talked about it, but fashion, to me, um, because I love this city and, and because I'm so ingrained with 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 Columbus and I, I really see the potential in Columbus and coming from Akron and being in a bigger city, you know, I see the potential in this city. And so I've always been about trying to support those initiatives. So you're looking at every industry and the shakeup that's happening in, in many industries, fashion being one of our top five industries in our city, going under such a huge, you know, disruption. Um, and COVID just kind of put gas on it. Now we're we're looking at how do we create space for the industry here to innovate because for, you know, anytime there's a disruption in something, there's an innovation that comes right behind it because the talent doesn't go anywhere. The the resources don't go anywhere. It's just a change of the guard. So now we're really addressing what's next for the industry here. And so I'm very, very excited about that. 
We're, you know, we just launched in uh, your neck of the woods over there by gravity. So we're inside the idea foundry and we're, we're even responding to that. So our fashion alliance has been working with the city to provide masks. So we've been giving opportunities to small local vendors to produce masks for the city to put out in our target, uh, our target zip codes, our underserved communities. So being in the middle, being able to connect the dots is one of the things that I probably love the most is like seeing issues and seeing things that need to be addressed and having the connections in the culture and a community to be able to connect the dots and make something happen. And so yeah. that's kind of like where we're at. We're always trying to find out what's the next challenge or what can we do for the people and just try to find a way to get there. Well, you know, you, you have a real skill. I think it's, you know, um, part of your superpower really is to connect dots. It's a thing, you know, it's really uh, a thing that, you know, um, not everybody has. Uh, and and I'm wondering, just before we start to wrap up, um, I know mindfulness and meditation has been part of your life in recent years. Talk a little bit about that practice and maybe how that helps you in getting the clarity to connect dots and and see uh, you know where where there are uh, solutions and, and and opportunities to solve problems. Yes, yes, uh, I'm glad you brought that up too because that's a uh, that's definitely been a big big factor in my life over the past couple of years. I started uh, my mindfulness journey a couple of years ago after uh, meeting uh, Juan Juan Alvarez, yeah. and uh, yeah. I remember when I met Juan. I tell this story too. I, I was a uh, part of Startup Storytellers, uh, which you were there too as well. And I met Juan through Startup Storytellers, and we were at the uh, Startup Storytellers dinner, and I kept looking and I was like, this guy keeps looking at me. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is, like, what's going on? Because every time I looked, like our eyes would meet and I was like, what is up with this dude? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we finally met and then after talking to Juan, you get it, you know, Juan's just like, yeah. he's, he's soaking in as much of his environment as well too and he's like processing that. But Juan, yeah. um, you know, and a lot of people think mindfulness is like hokey and then, right. you know, as you start to go down that journey, you realize it really is just giving yourself essential tools for your, for your, you know, your, your mental capacity. It's like creating that separation from who you are and your thoughts is probably one of the biggest things that people could take away. Our minds are so powerful. Our minds are really what, what shape our world, just everything that's happening here. So the quicker you can create the separation from who you are in your mind and be able to understand when your mind is taking you down, you know, a certain path that you know, could be harmful to yourself or being living through your mind, basically, you know? And so mindfulness has helped me stop living through my mind so much. I was always living through my mind instead of recognizing when I need to live through the body and be present. And so presence for me has allowed me to slow down. It has allowed me not to react as much uh, as I used to, because sometimes, like I said in the beginning of this, sometimes we hold on to an emotion because we feel like that's what makes us feel real. And this is, is, is its existence for us. Like, I'm feeling this, I'm angry. And we own some of these characteristics as a who we are, as a part of our identity. And, and it's not like that. And it doesn't have to be like that. And so mindfulness has taught me that and brought it into clear perspective about, you know, from anxiety being attached to the future and depression being attached to the past and anger being attached to the present, the rejection of the present, you know, being able to catch the mind when the mind's, you know, trying to fool you and trying to tell you something about yourself that you know is not true. So all of these things, and um, I'm, my, my daughter's getting into it now. And it's like, I, I love it because if you can just start down a path and even knowing that it's a practice, it's just 
a practice. It's you're, I'm not going to be a Buddhist monk next year. You know what I'm saying? But if mindfulness can help me slow down in the times where I need it the most, then the practice is benefiting me in my life. And so I never, you know, uh, I might miss a meditation, but I'll be right back on it. I never judge myself. And that's another thing is self-judgment. I have, I was plagued by a lot of self-judgment. And, and that was kind of part of that identity is like, why are you like this? This is, this is who you are. You're this, you're, and, and negative talk can just, it can destroy a lot of your potential and it could, it could hold you back so much. And so mindfulness just helps you understand that the talk is just, it's just that it's talk and yeah. what your ego attaches itself to or not, you know? So it's been. Yeah. Different. Yogi, I mean, I, I, you know, you, you mentioned this earlier with the, kind of idea of bad luck, you know, and how you were talking to yourself back then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somebody had pointed that out to you and you're mentioning it again. And, you know, I I just want to give you a lot of credit, you know, because you have overcome a lot and, and you had a a tough, uh, you, you got dealt a tough hand and you are doing a lot of smiling today, you know, and and that's because you've done a lot of hard work and you've beaten the odds in a lot of ways. And, you know, to be able to kind of slow it all down now with that practice and, you know, really remind yourself who you are, what you want to create um, and, and, and to be doing what you're doing for a lot of people in this community uh, you really ought to feel good about it. You know, I, I certainly appreciate you and really uh, happy to know you, call you a friend and, uh, you know, collaborate with you here and there and and love to do more with you always. So why don't you um, take us out? You got any other kind of final thoughts or things you want to share? You know, we, 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 we maybe should circle back around to that quote we started with. Because because useful, unique, and and updated, it, boy, you know, I've always kind of thought that way of you. Hearing that that that's a quote that that you really value describes you, and even more so after hearing this story. So, uh, you you take us out. Any kind of final thoughts? You know, the quote the quote is definitely how how I how I approach life, and and I try to live. I try to live that way. And for me, it's it's definitely my approach on how to help others. One of the things I would like to, to leave with is, uh, is uh, gratitude. One of the reasons why I, I also smile a lot is because I'm grateful for the people that I have in my life. And um, 614 Day was uh, an example of that. And I wanted to put this back on YouTube as well because you um, sent me a video to be a part of like our 614 Day shout out. And as I was collecting these videos from people like yourself, from people like, you know, Joe uh, DeLawson, from Jenny and from Kenny and from Mike Bongiorno and from Marshall, well, Marshall didn't do one actually, I'm making that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, from, from Malcolm White and from, you know, Susan Bradford and from, and all of these people, I had this overwhelming feeling of gratitude because I, coming from where I come from and being able to, call you a friend and be able to look at Kenny and say, what's up, Kenny? I haven't seen you in three months because of COVID and just being able to appreciate all of the relationships that I've, I've developed and that and I've been blessed to have over the last couple of years is really why I, I smile because I see like, man, 
I am so grateful for those people who are in my life right now. And 614 Day definitely showed me that. So moments of gratitude are what I like to leave people with because we all are fighting the fight. We're all going through things. We're all trying to figure out what's next for us. But when you take time to just look at those who have been there, those who have showed you love, those who have been key to whether it's a small step or large step, but any step forward in your life, it's gratitude. And I'm really, really appreciative of everything that's been happening so far in my life. So I appreciate you and thank you to uh, all of those people who have been a part of my life because I'm, this is the end product of that. And so the smiles because of, of all of you, for real. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Well, back at you. A lot of gratitude for you too. And um, keep up the good work. And I uh, can't wait to see you out in the world. Give yeah. you a big hug. Yeah. And, Thanks for taking the time to, to do this today. For sure, for sure, especially, man. Bless up for you, man. Talk to you soon. Appreciate you for bringing me on the show. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.